You may be seated. Jesus said amazing things about himself. I hope you parents, as you uh, see your kids come up and sit here and listen to a little children's lesson, uh, will follow up on those. Jesus was uh, a master at putting the cookies on the bottom shelf. But the cookies are also very deep. And we can hear the same things that we hear at five and hear them at 25 and 55 and 85. And they are deeper and wider and more wonderful the longer we live. Never dismiss a verse, a saying, a scripture, that you think you know. You don't know it. Everything God wants to teach you in each of his portions of his word. He said amazing things about himself and the Apostle John was uh, the disciple who in writing his account gave us uh, the greatest number of those statements Jesus made about himself that were so amazing. Not just I am the light of the world, but the other I am statements. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am who I am. Jesus said amazing things also about you. And the uh, apostle who gave us many of those was the apostle Matthew, who was uh, formerly called Levi and who was a tax collector. He was the one we figured could count the best among the Things Though Judas ended up holding the purse, but Matthew, we believe, uh, had to be able to write. And thus, it's not surprising that he gave us an account of the gospel of his Lord and ours. Uh, This morning, we'll look at two of those things that Jesus said about you and me. Uh, The reason we're looking at two of them is that they go together. Uh, uh, Matthew's gospel appears first of the four and first in the New Testament because it is a bridge to the Old Testament, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Matthew had a, a great love for his people, the Jews. Uh, This is all the more interesting. This is a little tidbit I hadn't planned to say in the sermon, but you know me. Um, It's all the more surprising that Matthew uh, had such a heart that his own people, the Jews, heard the gospel and connected it to their scriptures. 
because Matthew was the one disciple of Jesus who was the most despised by his fellow Jews. He was a tax collector for the Romans. He worked for the Gentiles. I mean, you don't like tax collectors to begin with, but then when they're working for your enemies who are not Jews and who have their boot on your country, tax collectors were just mentioned in the same word with sinners, tax collectors and sinners. He was despised by his fellow uh, Jews, neighbors, anyone who, who came across him, knew what he did. Yet his own transformation in Christ gave him a heart for the people who rejected him, hated him. Matthew uh, writes these two words about you and me as if they are a couplet in the Old Testament. We see the couplet literary form in the Psalms. Uh, one of those easy to remember, I hope, uh, places is in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Same thing said in different words, meaning the same thing, but often having something extra. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. That's the couplet form you find in the Old Testament. Jesus was a Jew, knew very well the Old Testament. Um, according to John, he was the author of the whole scriptures, so he knew it very well. And so um, we're going to read one of those couplets this morning where Jesus said something about you, and he said it in a double way. Um, I invite you to join me now as we pray that God will help us understand this very brief text we're going to read. Lord, we thank you for your persistence in communicating to us. We thank you that all the earth speaks about you, if only we would notice and study and learn. We thank you, though, that you also spoke in the language of the, your people, the Jews, calling them to be your people and speaking your word to one after another. We thank you that you led them to write their words down. We thank you that you led many to preserve those words, celebrate those words. We thank you that we have those words today. But we also know that we need your spirit to help us understand them and apply them into our lives. So we ask that help from you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So our sermon text is Matthew uh, chapter 5, verses uh, 13, 14, 15, and 16. Just four verses. I should not be able to get into too much trouble with just four. You'd think. <laughs> um, let us read these. I'll, I'll read them to you this morning, and you can follow on the screen. 
Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything, but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill uh, cannot be hid. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under a bushel basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Every time. I want to make three quick points this morning. I'm anxious about the congregational meeting, and I hope you are too. <laughs> but I, um, I'm grateful for this opportunity to share uh, the word this one more time. And perhaps in the future, there'll be another opportunity or two. But uh, uh, this morning, it's, it's especially uh, uh, meaningful to me and to you. And so uh, I was led to these four verses to say, not only does Jesus say amazing things about himself, but he says amazing things about you. There are three quick points, and they occur in three pairs of words. So the first pair is, uh, is the word you, and the second word is you. For Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Now, when you hear that or read that, I try to think, what do you think Jesus meant by that you? Most likely, each of us are saying, who, me? <laughs> um, that sounds nice, but... So I wondered, who was Jesus speaking to and speaking about when he said, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world? And so I wondered, since in English we can't quite tell the word you stands for one you, and the word you in many cases stands for Y'all. Now, I did not find, I could not find my copy of the new revised Texan version. <laughs> or I'd have put these up, you know, in our language here. But I checked the Greek. You wonder why um, Presbyterians insist that those who are going to be ordained for the ministry of word and sacrament are required to learn to read Hebrew and Greek with great struggles. <laughs> it is because there are times it's very helpful to be able to go back and ask a question that's not solved in English. And so I looked. Was this word you in Greek the word su for one you? Or was it the word for you all? 
And that word is humaeus, not eumaeus, but there's in Greek, there's a little mark above the U, capital U in Greek. That little mark says you say an H in front of it, humaeus. Humaeus are the salt of the earth. Humaeus are the light of the world. You all are. Um, is there confirmation of this? Was he really speaking to the group? You simply go back a few verses in chapter 5 of Matthew, which is the Sermon on the Mount, famous Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew. It begins 5-1. And 5-1 said, Seeing all the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. A difference between the crowd and the disciples. We might say some people chose to be disciples that very day and they left the crowd and made the effort to go uphill. Pretty interesting, pretty symbolic. There are steps to take. There are steps out of the crowd and into the companionship of Jesus to sit down with him and listen. These were disciples. You are disciples. You have stepped out of the crowd of the world and have become disciples or are in the process of it or have been a long time. You are followers of Jesus. It's important to continue on to understand what Jesus meant by you all, you together. For you are disciples individually, very true. We are alone a lot in our minds, in our homes, in our work, on the way here, there, often alone. We begin alone, we end up alone. We are individuals, but Christ calls us together. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He calls us together. When we come to God, we come with each other. We come among each other. We are together. We're often together as a group at HEB. We're often at a smaller group at the gas station. We're often together in stadiums. We're not together, though, like this. For we're not just there as cons we're not just here as consumers, like we are in HEB. Yes, we're in the aisles with one another. We're going around each other. We may say howdy doody, and we may say, "Can you reach that for me?" We don't know their names. We don't ask their names. We don't even know that we're going to see them again. We can be kind to them. We are making no investment in them. We're just consumers in the same place. Hopefully, a congregation of disciples 
are not consumers in the same place, but we are brothers and sisters. And we are learning and have much room to grow in knowing each other and loving each other. We're not doing that just by sitting here. There's much for all disciples to do. I've encouraged you to be proactive in that. One of the things that uh, the Apostle Paul wrote for us to say who we are was that we are the body of Christ. And when he wrote that to the Corinthians in his first letter, he gave some illustration. He said, the foot can't say to the eye, well, I'm not an eye, I don't belong. I don't belong in this body. We cannot look at anyone else and say, I don't belong. I'm not as this or that as they are. I don't belong. Um, Paul went on to say, uh, the hand can't say to the ear, uh, I have no need of you. He said, we need each other. We're a body. That's who the you are, the salt of the earth, the you are who are the light of the world. We're a body. We need each other. We can't say we don't fit together. We don't belong to each other because we're not alike. We're alike in the love of God, in his death for us, his resurrection for us, his new life for us, the transformation he has begun in all of us. We're becoming more like Christ bit by bit and we'll become more like each other even with our varieties. We are to be one. The final thing on that point of you and you is that Jesus prayed for us to be one, to be together. John recorded or, no, he didn't punch a tape recorder, no. John wrote for us what Jesus prayed for his disciples. And that included us. It is John 17, if you'll make a note of that. It's a wonderful thing to pray, to look at, to understand. Here's just a part of it. I in them and you in me, as he spoke to the Father, that they may become completely one so that the world may know that you have sent me. And I have loved them as you have loved me. Jesus in his prayer says that our being one is one of the most powerful witnesses that God was incarnate in Jesus of Nazareth. Our being one that which the world struggles the most with. Being one, caring for one another, despite differences, despite uh, uh, failures, despite harms and offenses we have, mistakes we have made. The world struggles with that. 
it's in violence as we speak. Both great violence of one nation against another and individual violence in every city, in every county, in everywhere in the world. The world needs signs of powerful love. Jesus said that our being one was a great witness to who he is. The second pair of words are the words salt and light. Um, You are salt, you are light. Two absolutely essential things for life. I knew I'd bought a book a while back. It's called Salt, (laughs) A World History. I know I'm weird, but I bought it. (laughs) Only 463 pages. (laughs) Amazing. Only in the last hundred or so years has geology informed us that salt deposits are everywhere in the world under the surface. Before the advance of geology, the world struggled over the few sources of salt from places like the Dead Sea or other places where they could manage to get salt, salt flats of Utah. And it was a very precious commodity. Wars had been fought over salt in history. All human life, all animal life needs salt to live. Sodium. You have 250 grams on average, 250 grams of salt in every part of your body. It wears away. It needs to be replenished from outside. Our body does not manufacture it. We die without enough sodium. It's amazing. One company in the early 20th century said 101 uses for salt. Chemists today say there's over 14,000 different uses for salt in our lives. Salt is huge for survival and life. So is light. You probably know more about light and our need for it, photosynthesis and life Vegetable life supports animal life. You probably know more about that than you do salt. Both are ingredients that are essential for life. So when Jesus was calling you salt and light, he was saying the world desperately needs you. In calling you salt and life, he has placed great value on each one of you and you together. Um, Some of us were on a Zoom yesterday for a Presbyterian meeting and we heard a person speaking, uh, doing a little short sermon. They were quoting a theologian, a Presbyterian theologian named Shirley Guthrie. And when he retired from teaching in seminary a long time, he said, God does not need the church in case you were thinking he did. (laughs) The church needs God. 
but God does not need the church to do anything God desires to do. But God chooses you and me for extremely important purposes. Giving you the responsibility to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world places great value on you. That's how much God thinks of you. Not what you used to be, but what you can be with him. God has given you great significance. Salt and light. The third pair of words are earth and world. You're the salt not to hang around in the salt shaker. You're the light not to just keep it all for yourself. You are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. The world is as close to us as across that street, each street. The world is as far away as around the globe. It's everywhere outside of us. We are not to be hanging around in the salt shaker. Jesus gave a final warning. How does salt lose its saltiness? How does it become useless? Why is light put under a bushel? How is light put under a bushel and become useless? Two illustrations. God has given two covenants. The first was a covenant with Abraham and Sarah. Abraham and Sarah. Never just say Abraham. I don't care whether you read it or not. (laughs) With Abraham and Sarah. He said, I am going to multiply multiply you and your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars. Secondly, he said, I'm going to bless you. Thirdly, he said, you are going to be a blessing to the world, all the nations of the world. And so God began to fulfill that purpose, but they were also an example for us of how we don't follow God, how we all turn away. And they began to turn inward and become opponents of everyone else in the world. Everyone else was Gentiles. And they went to war with those around them. Hard to be salt and light and a blessing when you're in conflict with those around and critical of those around and see yourself as superior instead of a servant. And so God comes in person, God's self, and begins a new covenant as Jeremiah said he would. And in that new covenant, he gathered people around and showed, him, showed them himself greater than he had ever shown himself before. And he sent them into the world too, the first ones, as salt and light. And they got the message loud and clear. And they scattered like salt around the known world. And they became light into one culture, one nation after another in those first decades and centuries until finally they reached the pinnacle of power, the emperor of Rome, 
who became a follower of Jesus and said that his whole nation would be. And so everyone began to sign up because the emperor said it was a good thing to do. Not because Jesus said, come to me. And those who were leading the church by three, 350s decided, well, now we're important. Now we don't suffer for Christ. Now we have status. Um, we, we need to show we're important too, just like the emperor. And we're going to build bigger buildings. We're going to build palaces. We're going to wear finer clothes like the emperor does. We're going to wear jewelry. We're going to let people know we represent God so we are different than them. We're, we're, we're more remote from them. And we protect the word of God. It's only going to stay in this one language. So though we take it around the world, they can't understand it. And we're not going to translate it for them. And if anybody does translate it into another language, we're going to find every copy and burn it. The followers of Christ, as the church went on, turned inward. They lost their saltiness until those that preceded us in the Reformation and other forms of the Reformation that were going on. The challenge for every congregation today and for Grand Lakes is will we remain the salt and the light or will we lose our saltiness? Will we hide our light under a bushel? Just be here and not turn outward. If we turn inward, it will be to our demise. It will be for every church, their demise, if they focus inward. They may still exist, but they will have lost their saltiness and they are of no good to the world. If we turn outward, still gathering, encouraging, teaching, helping each other grow, but facing outward, light for the world, we will grow. We will be his servants. In that way, we will follow him. Son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Where are you staying, Jesus? Nowhere. Come with me. I hope you had that vision. That's a word I thought was important to share with you this morning. Amen. I invite you now to pray and pray for one another as I leave.